The last week of the life of Jesus must be um, very, very important to, the, to God because the Gospels spend an awful large amount of time telling us what happened just in the last one week of Jesus' life. And so starting uh, a few weeks ago, we began each Sunday to take uh, the next day in the life of Jesus as we move our way toward Good Friday and then, of course, Easter Sunday. And uh, in doing so, we, um, of course, we began with um, Palm Sunday, and you can see the pictures over here. Back, these are actually wood carvings made in the 1800s by Gustave Doré, and uh, I can't believe he could do wood carvings like this, but he made these wood carvings for um, a, a, a copy of the Bible, so he made many, many of them. Palm Sunday, of course, is the Sunday in which Jesus came into Jerusalem, proclaimed his king, and he cried. He knew what was about to happen, even though that day they were proclaiming him king within just a few days, he would be on a cross dead. Though, of course, Sunday's coming. It began with Palm Sunday, and then we called the next day Melancholy Monday, because this is a day in which Jesus found himself having to do some pretty tough things. The main one we know about is his cleansing of the temple. The temple, of course, was the place that was the centerpiece for worship for the Jewish people, and uh, Jesus saw that the place that it was devoted from God to be used for worship had turned into a place of business, a place of politics, a place of all kinds of things that were the opposite of the heart of God. And he cleaned house. And then he said, this is my father's house. How dare you turn it into a den of robbers? That's what they had done with the temple. Then last week we turned to what we called a Testy Tuesday. It's uh, appropriately named, actually, because um, on that day, Jesus was given a bunch of tests. And then he gave out a few tests of his own. And he was rather testy that day because after he gave his tests and they failed it, he pronounced what were called the woes to the Pharisees. He said, this is what you're doing wrong as you try to lead these people into the worship and the following of God. And so that was Testy Tuesday. And now today, we come to Wacky Wednesday. Um, Wacky Wednesday is actually a book. I don't know if how many of you have read this to your children. I read it to mine. Um, it's, do you like that? It's kind of a fun book. Um, as you can see, everything's wacky on Wacky Wednesday. Let me give you a little um, insight here to it. It all began with that shoe on the wall. A shoe on a wall? It shouldn't be there at all. And then... Then I looked up and I said, oh man, and that's how Wacky Wednesday began. I went out the school door. Things were worse than before. I couldn't believe it. Ten wacky things more. And then if you read this to your children as I did, we had to find all ten of them. Every page had all these wacky things happening. Well, the day that was Wednesday in the life of Jesus, in the final week of his life, was wacky too. It's wacky because um, people who should have behaved a certain way did the exact opposite. People who were the leaders of Israel at the time, both the, the political leaders and the spiritual leaders, did some things that were just absolutely wacky. They were wacko. And so today, it's Wacky Wednesday. And so I invite you to look with me. I'm going to read just a very brief portion from Luke chapter 22, which gives you just a little bit of background, and then we'll go into much more on Wacky Wednesday. This is Luke 22, verses 1 to 6. 
Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So the picture that you'll see over here represents Wacky Wednesday because on this particular day, Jesus, to our knowledge, did nothing. He was probably at home with Mary and Martha, as this picture depicts, probably spent the day just resting with this family that he loved so much, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and we don't know what he did. Um, I can very strongly suspect that he spent a good deal of time praying. Why would I say that? Not because Jesus was so spiritual. That's not my reason. My reason is if you look through the Gospels, whenever anything really big is about to happen, like when he calls his 12 disciples, or when he's about to be transfigured, or in the Garden of Gethsemane, he always prays. And so I suspect on this particular day, Wacky Wednesday for other people, but for Jesus, it was a day, probably a day of rest. And so we're going to encounter on Wacky Wednesday we're going to see Jesus at rest. But the religious leaders and Judas are doing anything but resting. They are scheming as to how they could kill Jesus. So today we're going to look at three groups of people. All of these three are prominent on Wacky Wednesday. The first group will be um, people that are called the Sadducees. The second group, people who are called the Pharisees. And the third, Judas the one who betrayed Jesus. So we're going to begin with uh, the, the plot to get rid of Jesus. Now, if you can't read that, I have trouble reading it from here, but it says, number one, ask him tricky questions. That was Testy Tuesday. He passed that one. Then it says, trip him up. Ooh, they really failed that one. They got an X there. And then it says, be mean to him and hope he'll go away. Didn't work. Stone him, uh, a bit harsh. Feed him to the lions, very harsh. Get the Romans to crucify him. And that's what they decided to do. Now, who is they? Well, the Bible tells us who they are. Here's where it begins. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him, but not during the feast, they said, for there may be a riot among the people. Now, this group that met together with Caiaphas was called the Sanhedrin. This is a picture of actually where they met. It was a portion of the temple which had a room like this that had 70 chairs set, aside, set around in a semicircle with one chair in the middle, that was the chair of the high priest, and the 70 people who were part of this group called, were called the Sanhedrin. Actually, there were 71. There were 70 leaders of the nation of Israel and the high priest, making 71. The Sanhedrin consisted of basically two kinds of people. The chief priests, those were called Sadducees, 
and the leaders of the synagogues who were experts in the law, those were called Pharisees, or teachers of the law. Those are the ones who made up the Sanhedrin. We know some of the people who sat on this body. We know that Joseph of Arimathea, in whose tomb Jesus was buried, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas was the overseer of the Sanhedrin. This was the Jewish Supreme Court. They governed all the political and religious affairs for the nation of Israel, with the exception that they could not carry out capital punishment. Only the Romans could do that but everything else they could do. They met every day except for the Sabbath and holidays, but they, they met constantly because they were the runs, they were, they were the government of the nation of Israel at the time of Jesus. They were composed of people who were called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the people who were the keepers of the temple. How did you get to be a Sadducee? You were born. And can you imagine if, if today, if you became, what it took to be a pastor was not a calling from God, not a calling from the church, not a seminary education. The way you became a pastor of a church is if you were born into certain families. That's how it was for them. These are people who were of the Levitical lie, lie, line. They would probably have had the last name Cohen, which means priests. We have Cohens today. Um, when President, uh, I think it was under President uh, Clinton, his... Um, um, Secretary of Defense was William Cohen. William Cohen would have been a Levite. He would have been of the priestly family. He could trace his genealogy probably back before the time of Jesus. These were the Cohens. So, as you can imagine, if you became a leader of the temple and it had nothing to do with your spirituality, had nothing at all to do whether you knew or loved God, nothing, you got to be a Sadducee because you were born. That's how you got to be one. You got to be at least a Levite then. Then they took on a certain set of beliefs. They were what you would call today deists. That is, they believed in God, but the God they believed in was like a God who made a watch, wound it up, and threw it out in space and has never touched it since. Now, if you have that kind of God, you can imagine they did not believe in miracles because a God the deist God can't do a miracle. You can't do anything supernatural. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in, that in angels. They didn't believe in the devil. They didn't believe in all kinds of things. They only regarded the first five books of Moses because that's where Moses talked about the Levites and how the Levites are supposed to run the temple. That was their job. They were the heads of, of the temple. These are the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees um, were an interesting group of people. Since they were the power brokers of Israel, and as I've mentioned before, they were very, very rich. They, their major purpose in life was to maintain their position. And their position was always precarious because remember, Israel at this time was dominated by the Romans. The Romans were the overseer. And if the Jewish people, as they liked to do, cause a lot of riots, if those riots got the Romans really angry, the Sanhedrin is done. The Romans would come in with an iron fist and get rid of the whole group. So their major purpose in life was to keep the peace with the Roman government. Anything that would threaten that peace, 
they would try to stop. Why? Because maintaining that peace with the Roman government was how they got their money. That's how they got their power. That's how they got their position. So they are primarily motivated politically. They didn't really give a rip about Jesus. After all, Jesus is some dumb peasant from Galilee. He's nothing to them. He's absolute scum to them. They don't care. What they do care about is if he causes any political ripples, then they do care because that means they and their position are in jeopardy. So let's see what happened. Well, let's go back a little bit. This is what we find in the scriptures just after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, you would think that the nation would have gone nuts. Oh, can you believe it? There was a guy in a tomb. He started to stink. His body was decomposing. And Jesus went outside his tomb and called his name. The guy came out of the tomb, and hundreds and hundreds of us saw it. We saw it. Now, you'd think everyone would go crazy. What if that happened in Sheridan? I mean, man, you couldn't, you couldn't have a big enough church. We've had some very sad funerals here over the last a couple of weeks. What if one, one of those people is in a casket and you've got hundreds of people here and some guy walks in the back and says, rise, and the door opens and the person pops out? What would that do to Sheridan? It depends. It all depends. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, they saw him raise Lazarus. They put their faith in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, they went to the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees, they're the chief priests. Then the Sadducees and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. You think they would have called the meeting together and had a worship service, don't you think? Let's call this Jesus in. Let's worship God. God is alive. Well, that's not what they did. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. Because they were starting to suggest among the Sanhedrin that this Jesus is the real deal. And Caiaphas says, are you crazy? You give this guy any room to operate, and our whole nation is dead. If you've got half a brain, and this is the way he would have talked, if you have half a brain, you'd know that we, the only thing we can do is kill this guy and we'll save our nation. If this guy is allowed to operate, the Romans are going to come in and we're done. Woo. What's he protecting? Well, he's protecting everything that he has. His power, his position, his money, and the money of his fellow Sadducees. Now, what are they going to do with this? So on that day, rather than have a worship service, they decided they're going to kill him. Now, how bad does it get? They decided not only would they kill Jesus, but now they were going to kill Lazarus also. Why? He's evidence. You can't just kill the guy who did it. You've got, to kill the, you've got to get rid of the evidence as well. Now, remember, these are your religious leaders. These are your top dogs. This is like, the, for us, it would be like the, the president and his cabinet. That's who this is. They're the ones. So they made plans to kill Lazarus 
for, as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So the Sadducees, they were politically motivated to kill Jesus, and they had a huge motive. If Jesus is allowed to exist, they're, they're done. He was, a, he was a, a direct threat to their political clout. He was a threat to their way of life. He was a threat to their position. He was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their money. He was a threat that they had to get rid of. Now, I hope none of us have ever been in positions like this, but there have probably been times when we've been in situations where our, our power or money or position are threatened. And when that takes place, we are in a difficult circumstance. We can either do the right thing or we can compromise. Here, these people would have said, you know, the evidence is sufficient that this man is sent from God. Let's worship God and work with him. Instead, they said, no, 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 no. If this guy succeeds, we're done. Let's kill him and kill Lazarus as well. Those are the Sadducees. But there's another group. Also in the, um, in the Sanhedrin were the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees are upper class people. The Pharisees are not. They're middle class people. They're working class people. They are not politically motivated people. These are people whose major passion in life is to teach the word of God. That's their passion. These are your Bible teachers. These are the people in charge of the synagogue. Now, they believed that their main job on earth was to protect the holiness of the law of God. That was their job. The Sadducees are trying to protect their political power, but not the Pharisees. They want to protect the word of God. But they believed the word of God was a little bit differently different than you believe or that I believe. They believed God had two laws, the oral law and the written law. The written law is our Bible that we call the Old Testament. They would have called it the Tanakh. That was their Old Testament. That's the written law of God. But they believed that the written law of God never changes, but it, it's got to be adapted to the times. So they believe that God gave to Moses not only the written law, but he also gave to Moses the oral law. The written law never changes. The oral law changes over time as it adapts to culture. This is their number one command in the oral law. It's called Perke Obot, chapter 1, verse 1. This would be like Genesis 1.1. Moses received the Torah from Sinai, and he delivered it to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets delivered it to the men of the great synagogue. They said three things. Be deliberate in judgment, raise up many disciples, and make offense for the Torah. What does that last line mean? They believe that, that the Torah, that is the written word of God, must be explained and made practical for people. 
Because if, if you give a command like, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, what in the world does that mean? There's not a person on earth who knows what in the world that means. And people will make it mean whatever they want it to mean. That's why God gave us the oral Torah, so that we can tell them what it means in real life. And that's what they did. So the oral Torah, and this is all in Jesus' day. The oral Torah stated that work, because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, there were 39 categories of work. They, the, the oral Torah told them how many steps they could take on the Sabbath, whether what they could pick up and put down on the Sabbath, when the Sabbath started, when the Sabbath ended. They defined all the features of the Sabbath, and they called that the oral law. But which came from God? Both, according to the Pharisees. And remember, they're the protectors of the law of God. Now enter Jesus. There's a, uh, there's a Torah scrolls, and they're supposed to put a fence around it. Good intention. And by the way, we evangelicals do this all the time. And we don't even know we're doing it. We have our oral Torah too, but we don't write it down. But we have one. Here's what happened on Sabbath day. Jesus was, well, it began with Jesus' disciples. They were, um, on the Sabbath, they were walking through a field and, and they saw some heads of grain and they needed a little snack, like getting some nuts from a tree or something. And so they took some of the grain, put it in their hands, rubbed it together and, and started to eat it. And by doing that, they had broken four of the 39 categories of work, according to the oral Torah. And so the Pharisees saw what Jesus' disciples had done. And they said, Jesus, your disciples are breaking the law. And Jesus said, no, they're not. What do you mean, no, they're not? It's absolutely clear they're breaking the law. Jesus says, no, they're not. So what Jesus then does is he points to the written law and shows examples in the written law where people did things that were not, quote-unquote, lawful on the Sabbath. Like, for example, priests. He said, oh, the priests work every Sabbath and you don't consider them to be lawbreakers. And then he goes on to say, God does not desire sac He desires compassion, not sacrifice. And then where Jesus is in the synagogue... There's a man with a shriveled hand. And Jesus says, you people say that it's okay to take your animal out of a pit on a Sabbath, but this man has had a shriveled hand for most of his life, or all of his life. Can he not be healed on the Sabbath? And they stood back, and because their law had said, no, you can't do that. That's work. And the Bible tells us Jesus was angry. He was angry at the hardness of heart. And he said, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and the hand was completely restored. And this is the place where it all began in the Gospels. This is, a, this is actually pretty early in Jesus' public ministry, more than a year, maybe two years before he was crucified. When, they, when Jesus did that, that was the end. Now the Pharisees went out and plotted how they could kill him. What did he do? He healed somebody on the Sabbath day. Well, he did a little worse than that. Let's see what else he did on the Sabbath. 
Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So what's he doing now? It was Jesus' breaking of the oral law in the eyes of the Pharisees that got him killed. That's what it was. So why did they resort to murder? Because their religious traditions were being violated by this man, Jesus. And Jesus is going to go to point out, these do not come from God. They come from you. You made them up. You trying to fence the law of God. God never told you to fence the law. In fact, when you fence the law, you're going to destroy the law. He said, oh, no, 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 no. You're a lawbreaker, and since you're a lawbreaker, you don't fulfill our laws. You're not the Messiah. We're going to kill you. They were not politically motivated. And yet at the same time, even many leaders believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So now we get a little picture of the Pharisees, and their motivation was theology. We live in a world today in which we have many, 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 the number they say is millions, millions and millions of jihadists who believe that to kill themselves and as many people as possible is God's will. They're theologically motivated for evil. Well, the Pharisees were theologically motivated as well. And great evil has been done in the history of our world for theological motives, as well as, obviously, for political motives. So now we have people who want Jesus dead for political reasons, and now we have people who want Jesus dead for theological reasons, and now we meet the man, Judas. Judas Iscariot. Iscariot probably means from Kerioth. Kerioth is a city in Judah. He's the only one of the disciples that didn't come from Mississippi, so to speak, the country bumpkins. He came from the sophisticated south, the only one. And he was chosen by God, chosen by Jesus to be one of the 12. Every nation, as you know, has its Judas. Um, my Norwegian background, we have Quisling, and uh, the British have Guy Fawkes, and the Romans have Brutus. We all have our, um, our, our, our Judas. And of course, the whole world knows this name, Judas Iscariot, the traitor. How did he become one of the, the 12? Well, Jesus selected him. Here's what it says. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. So Judas' selection was bathed in prayer by Jesus. When morning came, he called his disciples to him. So the purpose of the, the calling these disciples is that these are the people who would spend intimate time now for three years almost with Jesus. And then he specially selected them, and then he called them disciples. He sent them out to preach. He sent them out to um, perform miracles, and they did. They experienced miracles aplenty. They saw Jesus perform miracles, raise the dead, heal the blind. They heard what Jesus said, and one of them was Judas, the traitor. 
Now, there was a time in Jesus' life, it tells us in the Gospel of John, where as, as he was moving more closer and closer to the cross, what Jesus would do is, instead of making his message more palatable so he could get bigger crowds, he made his message harder. And the Bible says that the disciples, some of his disciples, left him. What he had just done is he had just healed the 5,000, I mean, fed the 5,000. He had walked on the water, and then he calls himself the bread of life. And people say, what does this mean? You're the bread of life. And his disciples started to leave him. And then some of his own disciples said, uh, what's with us? And Jesus asked them the question, do you want to leave me too? Simon answered, Lord, where do we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, who was later betray him. Now, when you trace the, the life of Judas Iscariot, you see that at every step he finds himself dabbling with the devil until the devil enters him and takes over his life. It's a very sad story if you trace it. Let's trace a bit of it. This is, of course, the time we talked about on the day which we called um, Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, there was, Jesus was in the home of, of, of someone called Simon the, the leper, perhaps someone that Jesus had healed, and a woman named Mary had, had anointed him with this very expensive ointment, and it was Judas that objected. He said, wait a minute. Um, this perfume could have been used to, to take care of the poor. Oh, how kind of you. That's so good, Judas. I mean, the, 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 by the way, you know, he's the treasurer of the bunch. Now, if we were going to name someone here in this church to be treasurer, who are you going to pick? Well, you're going to pick someone you think is the most trustworthy person you can think of in the church. That's who they picked. So he's handling the bag, and boy, he really cares about the poor. You'll see two things that will always appear in the life of Judas. They are Satan and money. They will, you'll find them, he's, the guy loves money. And here he's talking about money. So that, that could have been given to the poor. Well, what's he doing? He did not say this because he cared about the poor. But because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was stealing. And these are, these are not rich people. These are poor people. So Judas is um, stealing money. So he's got a really dirty conscience for what he's doing, and yet he comes off among his fellow comrades as being someone who cares for the poor. Real hypocrisy. He's got a double life. Now the Feast of the Unleavened Bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, there's Satan again, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted. In fact, the Bible says that he asked them for money. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. They consented, he consented, and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And by the way, the sum of money they paid him would be about the equivalent of between twelve dollars and $20,000 in our economy today. That's about what it would be. And so that's a pretty sizable sum of cash for a person who for the last few years has been kind of wandering around with a group of peasants. 
It's a lot of money. Now, Judas Iscariot, he had personal motivation to kill Jesus. Here, um, we don't know what he was thinking exactly, but at some point, Judas knew that Jesus was on to him. And Jesus knew what he was doing, but Judas had succeeded in hiding the truth from all of his fellow comrades. He was slick, really slick. And not only was he slick, he came off as if he was really the one who cared about the poor, when in fact, he was the least person to care about the poor. And so Jesus saw through Judas, no one else did. You've probably heard the phrase before, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. That's a bunch of bunk. That is not true. Judas teaches us you can fool all the people all the time except Jesus. There's only one person we cannot fool. That's Jesus. You can easily fool all the people all the time. Judas had pulled it off, but he couldn't get it past Jesus. So he had a personal motivation to get rid of him. Three kinds of evil. Politically motivated evil, religiously motivated evil, and personally motivated evil. When our, our power, our money, our position is threatened, how do we respond? When our cherished religious traditions, even not from the Bible, that we've made up, we of course think they're from the Bible, but they're fences that we have made up, when those are threatened, how do we respond? I know how we respond, split the church. That's, that's called religiously motivated evil or personal evil. You're able to fool people all the time. There's a whole other side to you, and you come off as, oh, I care about people. Or in fact, actual fact, you do not. And God sees through you. And maybe some of your friends see through you too, and you don't like what they, what they see. And rather than coming clean and repenting and falling on your knees before God and recognizing you're no better than anyone else, nor am I, you decide, no, we're going to cover that baby up. And when you do, you're dabbling with the devil. And soon you might find yourself in league with the devil. I end with three quotes. Groucho Marx first. Politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. That's exactly what the Sarah Sadducees did. They, were, they had antenna everywhere out looking for trouble, and they saw Jesus as the trouble. What did they do? The diagnosis is, if we get rid of him and Lazarus, we can maintain the peace, our position, our power, and our money. That was their remedy. And of course, it's wrong. Here's Blaise Pascal. Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from a religious conviction. This is the story of our world today. It's the story of some of our history as Christians. We have done some awful evils in the name of God. That's something we have to look into our own soul, look deeply into the, into our, the mirror that looks into our own souls because religiously motivated evil is a really sinister kind of evil because it is extremely powerful. 
And our world is absolutely full of it today. Religiously motivated evil. People never do evil so cheerfully and think they're doing the right thing. The Bible tells us that the day will come when people will kill you and think they're doing God a favor. That's how bizarrely evil, religious evil can become. And then this by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. So if you think you can look at Judas and say, oh, that was him, that guy's a nut. What an evil man. You do not know yourself, nor do I very well, because the line between good and evil is not cut out somewhere. It goes through every single human heart. Speaking of evil, perhaps one of the greatest evils that this world has ever known is what's called anti-Semitism. It's the hatred of Jewish people simply because they're Jewish. And one of the major reasons for anti-Semitism is because the Jews are the Christ killers. Those are the exact words used constantly throughout history to kill Jewish people. That is wrong on so many fronts, but here's the major one. Anyone who could ever have those words or have that thought is absolutely zero when it comes to knowing the Word of God. Because if you want to know who the Christ killers really are, they're not the Sadducees. They're not the Pharisees. They are not Judas. It's me. I killed Jesus. And so did you. That's why we need the cross. Heavenly Father, it's a sobering day to think of how much evil is done, even in your name. And we're just susceptible to as anyone else. Oh God, have mercy on us. May we be people of broken hearts as we sang about this morning. Recognize our own sin. And rather than turn it into hatred of others, we turn it into faith in you and true repentance and love. So to that end, we pray that even when everything's wacky around us, we would be people of, of godly wisdom and following Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand with me. And as Galen mentioned, as we leave today, there will be elders at the doors with uh, offering plates, and that's for the elders' fund to help people in need in this congregation. As you leave this day, remember, we are people, even as we talk about Wacky Wednesday, we're people who believe in the wisdom of the cross. Though it might be foolishness and a stumbling block in this world, it is the wisdom of God. And may we leave this place just exulting in the wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life willingly for all of us. God bless you.